Welcome to Speaking Out. Mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. Despite the references both throughout the report and at the press conference given by the number of the select committee members just after the release of the report, and this was to the significance of the Black Lives Matter movement, I thought there was really limited critique of systemic racism throughout the report. There are nine mentions of racism in the 250-page report, no mention of it in the recommendations. Federal Labor's Linda Burney has declared a national emergency following a further seven First Nations deaths in custody in the last two months. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. In mid-April, the New South Wales Inquiry into First Nations Deaths in Custody released its final report along with 39 recommendations aimed at driving change within the justice system. It coincided with the 30th anniversary of the tabling of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody in 1991. The parliamentary inquiry was set up following months of campaigning by activists and organisers in the Black Lives Matter movement. It called on the state to commit to the immediate implementation of all 339 recommendations from the Royal Commission, as well as those from the Australian Law Reform Commission's 2017 inquiry. It also proposed reforms to address the over-policing of First Nations communities and raising the age of criminal responsibility. These were just some of the issues explored in a recent digital roundtable hosted by the National Justice Project, Deadly Connections, the Aboriginal Legal Services, New South Wales ACT and the Jumbana Institute. Joining the conversation were Gomeroy woman, poet and legal scholar Alison Whittaker, Carly Warner, lawyer and CEO of the Aboriginal Legal Services, New South Wales ACT, and Keenan Mundine, co-founder of the community organisation Deadly Connections. Let's listen in now as Carly Warner reflects on the key recommendations of the New South Wales Parliamentary Inquiry. Look, I think the the first one that obviously slaps you in the face is that the inquiry found that 30 years on from Rikidik, we're no closer to ending the over-representation of Aboriginal people in the legal system. And it is absolutely warranted that the very first recommendation is about implementing Rikidik recommendations. It obviously found that, you know, the multi-generational disadvantage underscores Aboriginal people's experiences with the legal system. But I have to say, I don't think it went far enough in critiquing government responsibility in entrenching that disadvantage, nor the systemic racism and the direct role it plays with police and corrective services and other institutions leading to our forced contact with the justice system and ultimately to First Nations deaths in custody. Young people were were absolutely a focus and rightly so. The inquiry said that, you know, they're the key to breaking the cycle. One of the key recommendations in terms of young people is to raise the age of legal responsibility to at least 14. We support this. I also would have liked to have seen the recommendation expanded and go a little bit further in relation to the suspect target management scheme. I think this just should be abolished, you know, generally, but immediately for all children. And also I think one of the other critical findings 
and I don't think there would be anyone who disagrees with this, that the inquiry found a better approach to oversighting deaths in custody is critical. The current system is plagued by doubts about independence and transparency, and we wholeheartedly agree. Mm. Were there things within the report that you thought were useful that were, I guess, I'd be interested to hear what you thought were any positives as well as were there other things that you were a bit disappointed by in relation to the report? I thought actually there are a number of really good recommendations that we welcome. As I say, the focus on implementing rickettic recommendations is a no-brainer. The recommendations to raise the age of legal responsibility to at least 14, again, a no-brainer. The recommendation to amend the Bail Act to include a provision requiring decision makers to take into account a person's Aboriginality and this would be similar to the Victorian provision, Section 3A of the Bail Act, just to make sure decision-makers actually focus on that. And, of course, there needs to be training and education about what that even means to make sure that you've actually got practitioners who know how to make submissions on it. The expansion of circle sentencing, expansion of the drug court, funding the Wollamer Court, providing adequate funding and resources to ensure that, that there's drug and alcohol rehabilitation services across New South Wales and recommendations to, you know, expand the powers and resources of the coroner's court. There's a number of really good things in there. We think, you know, there's some others probably that are moving in the right direction. Expanded powers and resources for LAC to investigate deaths in custody across both police and corrective services. But, I mean, this is only going to work if Aboriginal people are represented at the highest levels of the decision-making. There has to be an Aboriginal-identified commissioner role at the very least. And, of course, there were lots of calls to actually have a standalone First Nations-led body to do this investigating. So, again, things that could have gone further. I think amending Section 4A of the Summary Offences Act could definitely have gone further, and this should be repealed entirely. It is shameful that anyone is still landing behind bars for so-called offensive language. It is just archaic. And the commentary in there about, you know, intimidation and others, there's already provision in the Crimes Act for that. Just get rid of it. Despite the references both throughout the report and at the press conference, given by the number of the select committee members just after the release of the report, and this was to the significance of the Black Lives Matter movement, I thought there was really limited critique of systemic racism throughout the report. There are nine mentions of racism in the 250-page report, no mention of it in the recommendations. There's a recommendation that the New South Wales government amend the Coroner's Act to stipulate that the coroner is required to examine whether there are systemic issues in relation to a death in custody, um, of course, in particular for First Nations people. And this is really good, but you can't achieve justice for Aboriginal people and expect submissions and representations to be made by culturally safe justice bodies about these systemic issues that are impacting First Nations people without actually adequately resourcing the organisations that represent them within the justice system. On that, there is no critique of the ALS's limited funding, no recommendations to provide adequate resources for culturally safe legal representation, the support to families throughout kind of coronial inquests. We've got nine coronial inquests into deaths in custody on at the moment, and I thought this was a missed opportunity. I was a bit disappointed that 
there's a six-month period for New South Wales government to respond. I just think we have had five deaths in custody in the last two months. You know, how many are going to die in those six months? And that's just a response. And I, I think lastly, in terms of disappointments, and I'm glad you asked me to start with the positive things first, I do query why there's a recommendation to establish a select committee to conduct an inquiry into the New South Wales coronial system. Um, and I, I'm not suggesting that, you know, this is full and comprehensive and there's no need, but just how many inquiries do we need? I thought this inquiry was actually going to look at the oversight mechanisms for that. So waiting, I guess, for another inquiry that we'll respond to. Given that this was a parliamentary inquiry that had representation across the parliament, do you feel confident that the recommendations might be picked up? I think that is certainly what we're hoping for. I must admit I'm yet to go through the entire report with a fine-tooth comb to see if there's any dissent that's listed in relation to the select committee members. But, I mean, we had four of them standing together talking about this report and so my hope is that what they have done in terms of the the recommendations is recommend things that are achievable at the very least and so my expectation is that the New South Wales government has no excuse whatsoever not to support both this government implementing those but a bipartisan approach or a multi-partisan approach to actually implementing these recommendations at the very least. So I was wondering if we could get your thoughts on what you see as the role of the Aboriginal community controlled sector, particularly our Aboriginal legal services, in addressing issues of over-representation in the criminal justice system and around deaths in custody. I think our role is absolutely crucial and one of the key points that we made to the inquiry was this inquiry, if all it does is come back with recommendations about how to include more Aboriginal people in the systems that are ultimately failing us, this inquiry will fail. Aboriginal people have very good reasons to distrust the legal system without a culturally safe community-controlled response, without our community-controlled orgs, then there is no opportunity to kind of be pushing some of the systemic issues to be talking about the systemic racism that actually is leading to deaths in custody, that is leading to our over-representation. I was disappointed that there probably wasn't more commentary about that and the the role of community-controlled organisations. Again, it's great that there is often a focus on Aboriginal employment strategies within government and within bureaucracies. But for all of us in community-controlled organisations, we know how hard it is to keep mob actually in the community-controlled sector. They can go and get more resources within government organisations. And really, that's not a choice for community. Like, there is no real choice as to who you want to work for in the end when your life sort of changes, you're thinking about perhaps rent, mortgages, all of those things, ultimately... There's no choice. And unless they're going to invest into community-controlled organisations, we're not going to see kind of any change in the system. 
I was also wondering then sort of back to the 30-year anniversary of the Royal Commission, obviously there are a lot of recommendations there and a lot of recommendations that are you've discussed in relation to the New South Wales Parliamentary Report. In terms of where you see priority areas going forward, what would you identify those as being? Look, immediate, independent and transparent investigations of deaths in custody has to be first and foremost. You know, no police investigating police, no waiting periods of two-plus years for families to get answers from the coronial process, an immediate reduction of Aboriginal representation in the legal system and an investment in decarceration strategies. Um, As I said before, it would just... Absolutely. There's not even been any legislation that surrounds the suspect target management program. So it could just be immediately with a policy decision be gotten rid of clear, formal and effective oversight mechanisms for government to respond to the coronial recommendations and, of course, to other recommendations that have been made. And I just think one of the things that I'm sure others will further reflect on, but the importance sort of throughout this recent inquiry of centering the family voices um, within that inquiry and making sure that those family voices are centred in terms of any policy responses as a result. What I have to say in terms of when there's a question sort of asked about legal reform, if you like, legal reform will only have an impact if the systemic racism that underpins the institutions that make up our justice system is actually addressed. You know, I could say it's absolutely a priority that we review the Bail Act, and it is within New South Wales. But when you have Boxar releasing reports that say, you know, all other observable characteristics being equal, police are more likely to refuse bail to adults and juveniles if they're Aboriginal by 20 and 12% respectively, reviewing the Bail Act is only half of it. We have to make sure that that systemic racism is addressed alongside any strict legal reforms to the system. Just picking up on that, obviously you talk importantly about recognising the inherent systemic racism. Another question that came through from Patrick was a question about how we're going to address issues of incarceration rates when they're interconnected with other issues. Just finally, I wondered if you'd like to reflect on that bigger picture of the other things that need to happen in terms of complementing reform to the legal system, particularly quite specific legal reforms as we've discussed. That was one of the things about the report, I think, that didn't go far enough in talking about government's responsibility and entrenching that disadvantage, you know, since colonisation, essentially, and, and that oppression. But, you know, there's so many things, public housing, making sure there's a strong social net so people are not falling into poverty when they're needing it most, absolutely addressing the systemic racism that is embedded in the design of our systems and our institutions. You've got to turn them on the head. And I just think if we're not sort of focusing on all of those things and, you know, some people will probably say, well, that sounds like a a fair bit. Why don't we just take sort of bite-sized chunks out of the elephant and just focus on some of the smaller things? And whoever said that change and movements were mutually exclusive? Look, we can absolutely do more than one thing at a time um, at a time we start doing it. 
Carly, thank you so much. It's so great to hear your insights and your experience and, and just to shed a light on on things to help us really dig down into them. I always really appreciate hearing what you've got to say on anything and I particularly appreciate it after everything you've been through in the last week or so to take the time to do that with us. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's now my great pleasure to introduce Alison Whittaker, a Gomorrah woman, poet, legal scholar. She is a passionate and courageous storyteller who works primarily in media law and women's law and policy. She works quite across a range of issues in the um, criminal justice system and the policy area as well. Alison, it's so nice to see you here. I thought I would ask you as well as I started with Carly, just from a very personal point of view, what do you think was some of the key findings of the inquiry? Mm, Yeah, I was quite disappointed, I think. I'll speak to the review systems that meet families after their loved one has died. Those recommendations kind of came at the, the end of the report and they very much concerned me. One of the key discussions that was raised during the hearings that occurred um, in front of the select committee was this tension between two models. If there was going to be what's called like a light resourcing model where we shoehorn First Nations peoples um, and certain investigative principles into existing institutions, or if we do the resource and the work heavy model, which requires us to fundamentally rethink review systems where actually like First Nations communities lead the investigation, set its terms and have a very expansive view on what more want to know after someone has died inside. And I think quite reprehensibly, the Select Committee made the recommendation instead that the Law Enforcement Conduct Commission be tasked with doing investigations into deaths in custody. And I want to echo what Carly said earlier in the sense that unless there is any significant community control over this process, there's going to be an absolutely justifiably no faith in it because we have learnt, I guess, from a long series of reviews into review systems that the answer to this independence problem 30 years ago was posed as coroners and now to pose it as the LECC is going to reveal the same problems that we've had again and again and again. And to see also in an ensuing recommendation that followed the, the recommendation of the LECC investigate deaths in custody, that the extent of First Nations control was just going to be a senior position within the organisation that would be tasked with community engagement and internal engagement, Um, as if the problem was that communities were insufficiently engaged with the LECC in the first place, and as if the problem is one of cultural competency instead of state violence. So those things trouble me about the recommendations. I support any of the recommendations that, as Carly said, are kind of focused on keeping mob out of prison um, or extending the reach of bail. I, I support them to the extent that they support abolitionist demands that get us away from the use of prisons. And so if they are in any systematic way contributing to the decarceration of our mob, I'm fully behind them. But I agree with Carly that a lot of them don't go far enough in the decriminalisation of offences that we know police use to scoop up mob in public and expand their reach. We know that tinkering around the edges of the definitions of those offences isn't actually going to change the problem. It's the fact that there are these public order offences in the first place that enable a huge swathe of police discretion to take our people off the street. 
I was going to ask you more particularly what you thought it needed to be reformed about the coronial inquest process. I think you've touched on that a little bit. And actually, one of the questions from Cheryl, I think, asked the question even better than I was going to put it, which was, what can be done to ensure absolute independent investigations of all deaths in custody for First Nations people? I'll take you through the current process in order to understand what needs to happen with the next process. Um, so every death in custody since more or less the Royal Commission has an independent inquest. So every death in custody is subject to a kind of investigation that the Royal Commission uh, recommended be conducted as if every death in custody was a, a homicide until proven afterwards. And after that, uh, usually a specialist police unit will prepare a brief for the coroner, which is then um, handed to the council assisting. Families don't often have access to that brief, which includes a, a root cause analysis of the death of their loved one. And then this inquest happens, as Carly mentioned earlier, usually with a huge latency period of two to three years in which families are left in the lurch um, unless they have really proactive legal representation. And in that process of the inquest, a coroner is tasked with making recommendations, uh, which in New South Wales are not binding on any party, and there's actually no obligation to respond to them except through a Premier's memorandum. Um, and the coroner will also make decisions about the cause and the manner of death. And they can also, and have done in very few instances in New South Wales, but in one very critical one quite recently, make referrals to prosecutors to review the file and see if there is any criminal offence uh, incurred in connection with the death. Families find uh, a lot of this process in New South Wales hugely alienating, in part because there's no clear sense of what the family's role is in an inquest. So there's this huge push that you kind of see alongside the Royal Commission to have families involved, to have communities involved at inquests almost entirely as a, a kind of a transparency role or as a memorial role. And obviously that, that's not sufficient. Families have contributions. Families have scepticism. Families have a critical role in the review process that is not currently respected. And aside from the need for independent First Nations-led community-controlled investigations, which I think has been the case, has been well made by Carly why we need those, the centrality of families in the review processes that follows, in my mind, is most critical because there's all of these interests represented at inquests, numerous parties. It looks almost like no other, I guess, legal matter that many of us would be familiar with. And all among these state parties, there's just one person representing the next of kin's interest. And they're incredibly outgunned. Other state parties commonly appear before the inquest. Families often only appear once to defend the dignity of their loved one. And it's just almost insurmountable. So there needs to be a fundamental change to how inquests are run to give families standing on critical issues. Thank you. I want to pick up on something else you said earlier and draw that out a bit. It's your observation about the fact that we need to move away from incarceration as a model. I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about that. I think people are really interested in what that might look like and what that might mean. And also what you understand when you use the term defund the police or hear that to mean as well. Yeah, absolutely. So something critical about abolition or moving away from incarceration or defunding the police, however you want to frame it, is that we do abolitionist practices all the time. 
in the act of, you know, not calling the police on our neighbours, in the, the act of providing basic needs and shelter for one another without involving state agencies that have to refer to police. So these are critical things that we do in the day-to-day instinctively out of care for one another. And one great example of this potential It's not perfect, but in the early days of the pandemic where people were able to see the need that we have as a community and really concentrated on building mutual aid networks, which to me personally inspired me quite a bit, especially around um, something as important as maintaining COVID restrictions and being able to care for one another even as um, our personal liberties might have been restricted. On one hand, there was this model of policing that saw people routinely fined and harassed by police, including as the protest movement around Black Lives Matter built in June last year. And on the other side of that, there was this model where people were doing grocery delivery for one another, where people were checking in with one another the reasons that people might be breaching COVID restrictions. And so on a small scale, abolition can look like that. But I also want to note something that Debbie Kilroy said once, and I I know you're here attending. I hope um, I'm not misquoting you, so get in the chat if I have. Um, But you said something once about navigating that tension between pushing for an abolitionist future and at the same time working for decarceration. So there's that vision that we want in the future that we're trying to bring closer and closer to the present. But there's also making sure that people aren't left behind as we push And so for me, the decarceration agenda is really, really critical, getting people out of prison now. And then while we're at it, also making sure that we don't rely on prisons, we're building something in their place. And um, without wanting to sound dramatic, that we're tearing them down. We heard from Carly about the importance of community controlled work and Aboriginal legal services in particular. We also know that a key recommendation of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody was for self-determination to be applied as a policy. And it was also one of the key recommendations in the Bringing Them Home report. Ports often talk about this concept of self-determination. We talk about it as First Nations people. I wonder if we could get your reflections on what it means and why it's so hard for governments to implement it. I think the broader tension with the recommendation for self-determination, along with the huge political push that has existed for however long whitefellas have been on this continent, that mob control our own affairs in a way that's consistent with our sovereignty. And when governments recommend these things in reports that they implement some kind of self-determination, often what they're talking about is community-controlled organisations, which are absolutely crucial and have formed the backbone, I think, of the the capacity for these inquiries to have that knowledge base in the first place, as well as doing the critical work of keeping our mob safe and alive. On the other hand, there's kind of um, a a contradiction in a government saying that they're going to respect self-determination, where sovereignty is something that we enact and something that we do. And so governments need to reconceptualise themselves as standing back in this regard. And it's very, very hard often for settler colonial governments to see anything but further, more sophisticated, more tailored intervention as being what's desirable for First Nations people rather than actually stepping back themselves and seeing what we do when we're in control of our own affairs. You've just heard Gomoroi woman, poet and legal scholar Alison Whitaker. Before that, you heard Carly Warner, lawyer and CEO of the Aboriginal Legal Services, New South Wales ACT. You're listening to Speaking Out. 
It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Tonight we're bringing you a digital roundtable held recently in response to the New South Wales Parliamentary Inquiry into First Nations Deaths in Custody. Released in mid-April, the report suggested several reforms to the state's coronial system to ensure First Nations families were better supported. And it's an issue our next speaker knows well. Keenan Mundine has experienced firsthand the brutalities of the justice system and is only too familiar with the campaign for justice for the families of First Nations deaths in custody. Together with his wife Carly, he founded the community organisation Deadly Connections. Let's hear from him now. So for me, I've been trying to read the recommendations and, and it's been very, very hard because it's very frustrating from my first glance at it. These new recommendations that are being handed down from this parliamentary inquiry is basically painting Aboriginal people and communities as the problem, which is really difficult for me because... You know, you just read out how we sort of came about establishing Deadly Connections and, and we, we also, as an Aboriginal community-controlled organisation, we lived experience of not just being incarcerated but having people within my close circle lose their life to an Aboriginal death in custody. That There is no true self-determination in these recommendations. There's no true ongoing commitment into funding alternatives other than prisons and you know, I'll get more into my lived experience. I went into prison in 2005 here in New South Wales into the adult prison and I've yet to see any services start up and be funded to stop our people and mob from going into prison. But I think on one hand there's been more than about five new prisons established here in New South Wales, which to me lets me know that the government has money, just not for our fight, for their fight. I also find it very, very hard, you know, within our submission, and, and I'll just go across them very, very briefly in our summary, is decriminalising and decarcerating Aboriginal people, police for minor offences, especially public orders, non-violent offences, breaches of justice orders, traffic and minor property offences, raising the age of criminal responsibility, providing a right to bail for our mob when they go into the police station and then into the local court, promoting non-custodial sentences for Aboriginal people who are going through the criminal justice process, culturally responsive and accessible diversionary options for mob back get caught up in the criminal justice space, increased long-term and well-resourced early intervention, prevention and diversionary program, especially ones that are operated and controlled by Aboriginal community-controlled organisations, promoting self-determination within Aboriginal people, families and communities across this nation tackle problems in their own backyard. So that's, I guess, my summary of, of my thoughts on this um, new recommendations. They clearly miss the mark. And basically what I feel in terms of the recommendations handed down is extensions of what they're already doing. So one of them in here, which I have lived the experience of, is going through the Parkley drug program. And it was not culturally appropriate for me to be an Aboriginal man in that program. I spent 14 months in that centre 
and had a NAIDOC day, and Uncle Denny Eastwood, who paints for the Koori Mail, would come in and do painting with me once a week, and that's what they had on offer for me. I had to wait until I got to the second stage of that program where I got an ankle monitor and source my own pathway out of that centre to reconnect with my culture, my family and my community. They were there just to make sure that I'm abiding by the centre rules and staying drug-free and basically didn't even have a reintegration process for me. I just went to court and got my certificate and they said, congratulations, you passed the program. Just obviously hearing your experiences puts a much deeper light on what we're talking about. And it also goes back to Alison's acknowledgement that we really need to take on board people's lived experience. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how important you think it is for First Nations voices to be leading these conversations and how we can ensure that more of them are heard. Yes, I feel like I am very well supported and I'm very well privileged to be in such a supportive network within my wife, my work and outside of my work to be able to take this challenge on, talk about my, my, my childhood trauma, to talk also about my institutional trauma. Before me, I didn't have an Aboriginal man that stood up and said these things affected me and they're going to continue affecting me well on into my adulthood. I was raised on the streets and I was raised by criminals that have already been and spent multiple stints inside adult institutions while I was a juvenile. They were preparing me for adult imprisonment and the teachings that they gave me and the idea of what a man plays in my community was based on these guys. They didn't cry. They never asked for help and they did whatever was necessary within their means to make sure that they made money to take care of their family. That went on for about 22 years and I'm still in the process of unlearning all of these lessons that I learned growing up in an over-policed, marginalised Aboriginal community here in the inner city of Sydney. And I choose now to stand up and to say, I've been a part of those lessons. I've been a part of those teachings. I've been a part of these institutions. I've taken part in crime. I've taken part in drugs. And now I've removed drugs and crimes from my life. And all of those things affect me mentally every day, trying to stand up and educate people on my experience. So I hope that I can provide that beacon of hope for those men, women, children that are still trapped in this cycle and feel like there is no way out. I want to be that beacon of hope because for me trying to exit the criminal justice system and give up drugs and crime and try to get work, there was no example for me. Every program, every intervention I went into, I would ask them, what quality of life can I live if I never finish school, I've never had a job, I don't have a tax for a number, I'm homeless, I've got no support, what quality of life can I live other than just surviving every day? And they couldn't tell me. So it was up to me when I had the opportunity to go to that program to build my own entry, not re-entry, my entry to the community. I had nothing in this community to fight for. I was homeless. I was a heroin addict by the time I was 15. I lost both of my parents. I was taken from my home. I was taken from my older brothers. I spent time in police cells with my siblings. I spent time in prison with my siblings. I was two out in a cell with my brother. And we still haven't healed from our childhood trauma. My two older brothers are still trapped in this cycle and I still have to stand up and be that beacon of hope. 
I have two children of my own now and I fight every day for a change in this system so my boys don't end up in this and they don't lose their life to this fight. Thank you so much for sharing that. so powerful and moving and words that people are privileged but need to hear. In a way, you started to answer my next question, but it was really about getting you to tell us about Deadly Connections, why you established it, the kind of work that you do that you now understand is the sort of thing that might make a difference and what you and Carly are hoping to achieve with it. Ah, man, that's a big question. It was started on the back of me trying to leave my past life behind and not really understanding the pathway for an individual like me who has had that experience. So I had to, you know, there's a terminology of the first one through the wall is the bloodiest. So I'm the bloodiest. Nobody from my circle has broken through the wall, has lived a better quality of life and now does not have to worry about running from the police, police kicking my door in worrying about, you know, who's looking out for me. Is somebody going to come and fight me in the middle of the street? I had to break that wall. But the inception and the development of Deadly Connections was my wife, who's a very intelligent Aboriginal woman herself, worked in the community sector, worked for justice, worked for corrective services, went and got a master's degree in criminology and worked for these government departments, but couldn't really affect any change internally. I came out of, from my lived experience, I was able to be brave enough and strong enough to stand up and share my story, but at the same time understand that these kids and also the elders that are still trapped in this cycle need to understand there's a better quality of life. It takes hard work and it does take a toll on you, but we need to be strong for the next generation. Unfortunately, for me, my extensive criminal record kept me out of participating in the work environment that I wanted to do. So I was a youth worker who worked for two years while the Office of the Children Guardian done their investigation on me whether I could be a youth worker or not. So they let me work for two years. I might get upset because it was a really hard process. So they let me work for two years, get engaged, have a child, have our second child expecting, and then after two years say, you can't be a youth worker no more. So they took it off me. I lost my job. I lost my income. I lost everything that centred me as a human being trying to give back to my people and my community. And I thought, what's the point? I relapsed. I got back on the drugs. I was about two choices away from ending back up in prison and spending the rest of my life in prison. And it was only through the support of my wife and myself and the knowledge that I attained along this journey to say, I need to stop this. I need to get some mental health support. I need to get some drug and alcohol support. That's where... I fell into, you know what, these people walk and talk a good game that work in this sector, but if they failed me, who else are they going to fail? They did not support me, and this is the white organisation that I worked with. I won't name them because there is a place for them in the community, but they failed me. They failed my children. They failed my family. The CEO of that organisation came to the hospital and held my son in her arms. When the decision was handed to that organisation that I could not work with children, except it dies with me. That for me was one of the hardest things to overcome because how much I gave to that organisation of my lived experience, my personal journey and my fight. So it took a long while to get over and to be the bigger person in this picture and to always be on point and show my mob and my children how to be courageous and to be brave 
and to show that we are descendants of true warriors for more than 60,000 years in this land and that's not going to break me. I said something needs to be done for our mob to know that they're going to look, be looked after and at the same time if somebody comes behind me, like me, and wants to work in this sector, I'm going to find a way legally where they can give back to community and not have to worry that they're going to be shunned and ostracised just because they made a choice 10 years ago, five years ago, two years ago. And also my own personal journey and my own lived experience. So Deadly Connections, in terms of what we do, is advocacy, lobbying and truth-telling where I share my story. But we also have four grassroots program and we take a life course approach, which means we don't want to leave no one behind. So we want to work with mum, dad, kids, siblings, and we want to advocate and support them through any of the process that they're going through, whether it be a death in custody, whether it be a child who's fell into substance misuse and abuse, whether it's a child in custody, whether they lost a child to care because of my own personal experience. So we work with mums and dads to keep them united together, upskill them, equip them with parenting skills, what society expects from them as a parent, rather than reflecting on their own, parenting from their mum and dad and saying, well, I'm just doing what mum and dad told me and what mum and how mum and dad raised me. So what's wrong with that? So we're saying, you know, through our Deadly Families Project, no, this is what the government expects of you. You need to have your house in order. You need to be responsive. Kids need to be in school. There needs to be structure. So we have a project to be able to work with our mums and dads. We have an early intervention and prevention program where we work with children aged 7 to 12 of in-prison parents, of siblings in prison, of mental health issues, to get them to understand their place within that home that you don't have any control over these things, but this is how it's going to affect you when you're an adult. This is how you keep yourself safe. This is how we put a safety plan in place for you and the school to keep you engaged in the school. We have a street smart program where we do a detached youth work program. So we go out onto the streets and just hang with young mob. We give them some food. We play some music. I play some footy on the basketball court with them. I play some basketball. My wife does some women's business and talks to the girls. But we're out there present so the police don't harass our young people. Why are you hanging in the park? Well, I live across the road. That's why I'm hanging in the park. I don't understand that. They just see Aboriginal kids congregating in a park and they harass them. Then the fourth project that we got is our Breaking the Cycle project, and that's to work with any mob, women or men, or young people aged from 10 up to 60. We want to be able to provide that integral community support and that unconditional love that you would get from a mum and dad and aunties and uncles and men who are in a position and have the capacity to give you unconditional love. That's where Deadly Connections was founded in bringing it back to mob and community where we take care of each other. If you don't have food on the table, I'm not going to judge you. I'm going to make sure there's food on the table for tonight, make sure the kids are fed, and then we'll have a look tomorrow on what's going on in that household. Man, I'm very humbled and privileged to be in this position. From my own experience of being homeless and living on the streets, I'm very humbled to be able to make sure there's food in households for kids, be able to make sure electricity is on for families, especially for my brothers who have died in custody to take care of their mums, their little sisters and their cousins. And I don't big note about the work that I do. I do it because it helps me sleep at night and know that my kids are safe and their kids are safe. 
Amazing work, an amazing story too. Thank you so much. It really is inspirational and, of course, it must make such a difference to the people that you're working with when they understand what you've been through and what you've been able to achieve. It must be a whole other layer in terms of what they're getting from connecting with you and the work that you're doing and that Carly's doing with you. You work a lot with young people and we we heard the little ones in the background. What's your hope for the next generation? My hope for the next generation is to empower them with the right tools and skills to continue our fight against the colony, to be self-determined, to be able to look after our communities the way we know we need to look after them, to be able to look after the troubled people in our communities the way we know how to look after those troubled people. What the wider sort of population needs to understand for me is before the colony came, we were thriving for over 60,000 to 80,000 years within our many different dialects and tribes and codes. There is not one word for jail. And we all looked after each other and we all made sure that our children were safe and our communities were safe. We have the knowledge and the power to be able to govern, rule and take care of our own communities, but also our most vulnerable members in our communities, women, children, elders and young people. For me, I also want to sort of like reflect a little bit on what Alison talked about in terms of justice and the way and abolition. So one of the most recent things I learned about in terms of justice is the difference between restorative justice and reformative justice. So restorative justice is to get somebody to understand the effect of their crime, where reformative justice is to understand why that person committed a crime and how we can stop that person further committing a crime. So for me, it's around tailoring individual support for people, no matter who they are and where they're from, and to know that this is a long, long battle and a long fight and that invest in Aboriginal community control organisations. We know who the troublemakers are in our community, but we also know the people to reach those troublemakers in our community. Police aren't doing that. It's been, you know, 30 years and no justice and... It's been 17 years since my mate was chased in Redfern by police, impaled on a fence and pulled off that fence and died in the hospital whilst being surrounded by the police. And his mother now has to live with that with no justice, no explanation, no apology, no way of telling her grandkids and her daughters of what happened to TJ Hickey. You know, so I have the privilege of being very close to Annie Gale and have permission to always talk about him wherever I can and however I can. And within that coronial inquest, and it's very public, the documents, you know, the police officer took the stand and said he won't testify because he will incriminate himself. And the coroner at that time basically patted him on the back and said, good work, don't do that. I advise you not to do that. It's something that's torn my community apart. That's affected me really, really bad because when I found out that TJ was killed, I was in Cobham Juvenile Justice Centre and I went and got locked into my cell after a phone call of telling me that my friend just got killed by police. I'm still now healing from those wounds and my community is still healing, not just from TJ, but from Patrick Fisher and Eric Whitaker. These are three boys that I've grown up with, that I slept head to toe with, that I run the streets with. And their family has no justice and no recourse of ever getting justice for the death of their loved one. Mm. 
I think everyone listening is going to be very moved by what you're saying. And I guess what I would say to them is translate that emotion and those feelings into action. And I was wondering from your perspective, particularly for non-Indigenous people listening, how can they help? How can they be part of the solution? I think firstly, I'd like to say as an Aboriginal man, I'm 33 and I'm on a never-ending process of learning about my Aboriginality, learning about my culture, learning about my place within my community and my family and my responsibilities. So to always continue their education on working with mob, how to elevate their voices, never speaking for us and never doing for us what we can't do for ourselves, but to also follow, I guess, the sort of protocols in terms of affecting change, calling your local member, jumping on board campaigns and lobbying and, you know, being an activist, educating people within your own circle, challenging racist stereotypes about Aboriginal people. You know, where did you learn that? How did you learn that? Do you know an Aboriginal person? Did you grow up with one? And following us on our socials, we try, I guess, on our Instagram, which has the most traction, to not only slap people in the face with information, but also to be lighthearted in the way we give it so it's digestible for them to repost and share and basically challenge the narrative around our people. If we only make up 3% of this population, 97% of that population has it very wrong on how we operate, how we work, how we love, how we nurture and how kind and forgiving our culture is and how much knowledge we have, how much wisdom we have, how much courage we have much strength we have as Aboriginal people. And when it's time to come together, we all stand together. You've been listening to Keenan Mundine, co-founder of the community organisation Deadly Connections. Earlier in the program, you heard Gomeroy woman, poet and legal scholar Alison Whittaker and Carly Warner, lawyer and CEO of the Aboriginal Legal Services New South Wales ACT. They were taking part in the digital roundtable Spotlight on the New South Wales Report into First Nations Deaths in Custody. The event was co-hosted by the National Justice Project, Deadly Connections, the ALS New South Wales ACT and the Jumbana Institute. To take us out tonight, we've got a track by Emily Waramurra. It's taken from the album Milyuk Burra and is called Lady Blue. Lady Blue, fill the waves in my head, so calm and cool. Perfect, no despair. I wish I could swim here forever, Miss Lady Blue. Run, run down the way that we go Pulling up, picking up the sand
lady blue miss lady blue that's emily waramara with lady blue If this program has raised any issues for you, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14, Suicide Callback Service on 1300 659 467, Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636 or Headspace on 1800 650 890. That's the show for this week. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out. Speaking Out.